Welcome to The Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 14, an interview with an interesting person, Hannah Anderson. Now, Hannah, we have you here. We're, typically, we, we record this in my study, yeah. in, the, in the global, worldwide headquarters of the Bonhoeffer House. But we spread out today. We're in the, the church library at Valley Bible Church. Yeah, the shed quarters is a little small. It's a little tight. It's a little tight. And so we wanted to have some more room here to have Hannah with us. So thank you for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me and for calling me an interesting person. <laughs> that might be like a life goal. So oh, I can die happy. We heard some other life, <laughs> we heard some other life goals <laughs> over lunch. Um, involving uh, dying. Also involving dying happy. Yes. I think everyone should be prepared to die. I mean, <laughs> we should remember our death. And so one of my life goals that I'm working on, I have not yet accomplished it, is um, not just to know where I'm going to be buried, but to actually own the cemetery in which I will be buried in, hopefully on a piece of land that I own. That's right. But yeah. that's not it. Oh, no, no. The There's, land also needs to have a waterfall. So That's right, a waterfall. Yeah. So waterfall, graveyard, all in one land. Yep. To keep to keep your your uh, your death in mind is that this the, is your memento mori this is your uh, no the waterfalls to enjoy <laughs> right okay, okay. <laughs> you know what that waterfall reminds me of <laughs> one day I'm gonna die one day um, and the graveyard well here in Southwest Virginia I don't know how it is in other places in the country but but you all know like family cemeteries are a thing that's right um you know obviously we have churchyard cemeteries we have public cemeteries but you can be driving along in the middle of nowhere and come across a set of graves on Uh a piece of property where um a family extended kin network have for years hundreds of years buried their people there and i just love that and one day you you might also be there well Well, if i can Buy a cemetery, yes. <laughs> well, we're so glad to have you with us and to fulfill one of your we can't we can't help you with the graveyard or the waterfall, but we think you're an interesting person. And uh and so we're glad to have you with us. Uh you know, I had a really interesting thing happen to me today. Uh well I it didn't happen to me. I happened to it. I, I did it. I did an interesting thing today. Uh, I know what you're talking about. I <laughs> I prayed the invocational blessing on the on a brand new grocery store. Here in our small town, Radford, Virginia. Food City. Food City. I love that. Food City. So I they asked they, I, I was asked to pray an invocation, and I was like, absolutely. And then I thought, I'm not sure I know how to do that. Is there a prayer for a grocery store? I, I actually grabbed, um, what's the what's the Rabbit Room book, the liturgy one? Um, Every Moment Holy. I grabbed my copy of Every Moment Holy because there's everything in there. There's not it's, a liturgy for the opening of a grocery store. There's not. You're right. I, I was disappointed. <laughs> what's his What's his name? Uh, I don't know. I forget his Andrew name. Andrew Peterson's friend. Yeah. yeah. Andrew Peterson's friend. We'll, we'll we put need a, a liturgy we'll, for the opening of a grocery <laughs> store, please. <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. I'm it sure was, he listens. <laughs> it was incredible. It was so fun. There were hundreds and hundreds of people at, at 8 o'clock in the morning. I wrote my prayer out, which I'm so glad I did because I got super nervous. Yeah. Like I was surprised at how nervous I was. Why? Why was I surprised? Why were you so nervous? Or why were you surprised? Well, I speak to many hundreds of people. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not used to speaking to crowds like like Hannah. What's the biggest crowd you've spoken to? Um, Oh, you don't like numbers. 
Yeah, numbers don't have much meaning. Just a me. big group of people. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to a couple thousand before. A couple thousand, so that's a little more than a little bit more than than I'm used to. Yes, but I've never been asked to pray the invocation at a grocery store, and quite frankly, I'm a little jealous. Uh, mm. yeah, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> I it was I got very nervous. I um, you know. As I was going up to do it, I was praying, God, I want to represent you well. Uh-huh. And I think that's where the nerves came from. Like, if this isn't people coming to church on a Sunday that are coming to it with an expectation of, um, of this is a, a, a place where uh, people pray. Uh-huh. Uh, and so there was a bit of, I just, I got shaky. Mm-hmm. I was really glad I wrote the prayer out because um, I have a bit of a fear of saying something really stupid publicly. It's, and then going viral for it. it right. Yeah. <laughs> Saying something stupid publicly for me is like a pretty legitimate possibility. And so I wrote the prayer out. Very, It was really wonderful. Good to see the city come out. There's this kind of everyone from law enforcement to our elected officials to our uh, city employees to all these people that are working at this locally owned Southwest Virginia uh, uh, grocery store chain to just people that want to come buy the groceries uh-huh. all together this morning under the beautiful, beautiful uh, sun that God brought out after weeks of rain, weeks of rain. So been a fun day for me, been an interesting day, and I'm glad that we have Hannah here for this episode. Now, uh, we've been doing this series, uh, well, we we introduced um, uh, in, in episode nine, I believe, we, we, we invited people to, to read through Calvin's Institutes with us this summer. And we try to drop in and do like a little one-minute update. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'll take the update yeah, today. It's your, it's your turn. I don't have it in front of me. I'm not going to read from it. I'm just going to say we've been meeting. We, we met on Monday with a group of us, and we talked about um, more about the way that Calvin writes. That um, So if you're reading along with us, let this be a bit of a um, uh, uh, some hope as you move forward. In the Institutes, one of the things we talked about is how it, it, imagine, uh, imagine Calvin walking through a giant mansion. And he opens doors and he's like, hey, this door, this is the door about creation. And then you're like, oh, cool, let's go in there. He's like, nope. He closes the door. <laughs> he's like, we're going to the next door. The next door is a, a, a little bit different. It's about scripture. You're like, oh, well, can we at least go in that door? Nope. <laughs> and he closes. But he goes back. You get back into those rooms. Yeah. And so you kind of have to, um, uh, I'm, I'm, you, you have to put yourself in the, in the mind space to be able to say, all right, this is a way of writing that I'm not used to. I'm used yeah. to like, you just dump it all out. Yeah. Let me into the room. Let me explore all the corners. And so stick with it. You're going to get in most of those rooms. You might not like what you find, but you'll at least <laughs> you'll at least be invited in there yes. to look around. Now, Hannah, we know you've been listening uh, faithfully. We're sure of it. Uh, but <laughs> but I just want to remind you what, what this podcast is all about is the good, true, and beautiful, especially Philippians 4, 8, which says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise— Think about these things. And so, so that's what we want to do. We want to stop and look at the lives and vocations of interesting people that are serving God uh, in a Philippians 4, 8 kind of, we, kind of way. And so and we want to be curious. We're going to ask you all kinds of questions, follow-up questions. Uh, but I want to first say why we wanted to have Hannah on. She was asking, so, so now I'll tell you, Hannah. <laughs> we wanted to have Hannah on because Hannah is a friend. And so that's reason enough. But in addition to that, she has, you've been a friend to the Bonhoeffer House. You've spoken at, uh, we spoke at our Fall Virtue Conference, uh, dropped in as a guest teacher in, in our, our Bonhoeffer House local course offerings. 
uh, helped connect us with great friends and resources, including last week's guest, uh, guest Trillian Newbell. Yeah. Your writing's been formative. You know, I have never told you this, but um, your, you had a, uh, an essay on place. Mm. And that was the first thing I read of yours. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, probably in the last five years, I would guess. Yeah, it was only a few years ago. Okay. Yeah, I, know, I think I know the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so I read that and I was like, this is so good. This is like, this is like Wendell Berry, but better. Yeah. I used it in a sermon. Really? I gave you credit. Okay. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, actually, local writer. Mm. I usually don't do the credit thing. Also, <laughs> also, um, Hannah kind of wrote the book on this podcast. Yeah, so I, I was getting there. <laughs> I was getting there, Michael. Okay. That, uh, that in fact, a big reason when, we, when, when Michael and I sat down and we started thinking through with the Bonhoeffer House, um, what, what do we want to do this spring and summer? Uh, what, what directions do we sense the Lord moving us in, especially in this time where we're limited in, in the types of things that we can do because of the pandemic we're in the middle of? Um, your writing, in, especially in um, All That's Good, uh, and, and even inviting us to look through the framework of, of discernment through Philippians 4.8 and seeing, looking for the good and the true and the beautiful, we were like, we should do a podcast like that. Yeah. And so, and so, in fact, you probably should have been the first guest that we had on, but <laughs> we, uh, we, yeah, we, we tried to get relatively early, right? Yeah. You reached out really early and I was busy. That's yeah. right. So Thank you for saying you. that. You didn't have yeah. to say that, but I appreciate <laughs> it. And so, uh, you have written, uh, many books, many, many books, all that's good made from more humble roots. One, one in the works one that we're going to hear way. about, but before we get there, Hannah, would you please introduce yourself? Here's the question we ask all our guests. What would be on the back of your baseball card? Oh, wow. I realized as I wrote that, I think I'm the only person that collected baseball cards that we've had on. But it's been great. It's, it's yeah, been. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. What would be on the back of your baseball card? Wow. So I'm trying to think first of what position I play. Like, <laughs> But um, when I played softball in high school, some I would play shortstop. That's a good, um, that's a good one. So I feel like in my life, in my home, in my family life, that's still what I play, mm -hmm. where you just kind of fielding grounders and anything that comes at you crazy and you're trying to pass it off to the right person. Mm. Um, I, um, I, I think of my life and what I'm called to do in terms of um, my, my family first, the people that are closest to me, just because um, that's how I have known myself. That's how God has, um, you know, place me and put me and the people in my life that are closest to me are my husband, Nathan, and my three children, um, Phoebe, Harry, and Peter. And um, a large part of my adult life has just been invested in that space. And um, I would not be who I am if it were not for those people. So mm -hmm. when I first think about who I am, I have to tell about those people because um, the relationships within that space have made me who I am, even as a writer or a speaker or the things that I care about, um, the things that are important to me. Um, I also um, like, I'd like to think of myself as a person who is locally focused. And, and that's what I've loved about getting to know both of you all, because so much of my work happens online or in publishing and it's spread out um, and being able to connect more locally um, with folks who have similar passions or similar vision um, for flourishing is such a joy. And so mm. when I saw, um, I don't know when we met, Jesse, it was 
year or two ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you know, getting to know the work of Bonhoeffer Haas and say, Oh, this is what I'm trying to do with my life too. This mm. kind of holistic vision of vocation. Um, so like you, you want to come on staff, I'm hiring an associate director. It's <laughs> <laughs> messed up. Sorry, Michael. I was like, I thought that position was filled. Well, it's still tentative. Um, uh. So the, um, the, the impulse there, you know, I recognized it right away um, when we started to get to know each other. And um, like you mentioned, you know, I do a lot of work in um, writing and some speaking. Um, I find my, my life is very eclectic, and I try to find the thread that kind of connects all of those things together because if not, it can feel a little more like um, birdshot than mm. a rifle. Um, and so for me, c- trying to come to a realization of what has God entrusted me with in my life, in my space, um, I think that the themes that resonate with me are the question of human flourishing. Um, what does it mean to tease out this reality of Genesis 1, 26 through 28 of um, being image bearers in the world, um, living in relationship and community with each other, and exercising dominion and um, all to the glory of God. And then how does um, the gospel frame that for us? And what are the visions of this beautiful coming kingdom um, that we're all kind of moving towards? So whether it's in my life at home with my kids, whether it's in my writing, um, I think those are the questions that bring unity. Um, so on the back of my baseball call card, I guess it would be questions about what does it look like to live um, the life God has intended for us to live, even in the midst of, you know, what is brokenness at times, but to, to be moving toward goodness, to be moving toward um, the flourishing that he has for us. Mm. That's good. Back, that's a good back of the baseball card. And in fact, it transitions well to the next question I want to ask, which is about vocation. We, we've, we've talked often here on the Hammer and Quill about vocation being uh, connected to from, from the Latin word for call to call. Uh, and so that, you know, rather than seeing vocation as just something that missionaries have or pastors have, um, really that God has a call for all of, all of us. And uh, so we're, we, we like to explore how God is honored in a variety of vocations, a variety of callings. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about, um, we'd love to know more about your vocation. What, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? But also even how you think about vocation, if you want to kind of run down that, that lane a little bit. So I think the most fundamental um, shift in my thinking about vocation or the way I had heard it discussed probably came about um, 10 years ago. When I was brought up um, in mostly trying to understand my vocation as a woman, um, you know, being a young married, a young mom, a lot of the conversations directed toward me were about the vocation of motherhood or being a wife. And those were all really significant um, questions and conversations and directly applicable to uh, the work I was doing, especially at home with young children. Um, But there came this point where I began to ask, is this the sum total of vocation? So when I think of my own vocation, can motherhood and being a wife um, circumscribe all that my vocation is? Mm -hmm. Or does that actually need to be um, inverted and turned inside out? Is motherhood and being a wife part of 
something that's larger. Mm. Oh, right, right. So the question I had to answer was, is vocation singular? Mm. Is there one thing that you are? Or are there multiple things that make up your calling in the world? And as I began to trace that down, I was like, well, yes, I'm obviously called to be a wife and mother because I am a wife and mother and that obviously is part of my vocation. So I'm not going to jettison that or to put that in contrast with something else, but I also have these gifts and I also have this placement and I also have this interest Mm. that aren't necessarily um, organic or originating within motherhood or being a wife. Um, So how do I make sense of those things? And I think the way I know the secular world thinks about those things. And sometimes we in the church pick up on that and baptize it and don't realize we're doing that is we tend to pit these things against each other. Yeah. Like you can be this thing or this thing, but you have to choose between these things. Yeah. And so I feel like the work of my adult life has been developing for myself um, a vision of vocation that is holistic to include all the things that God is calling you into all of the things and all the ways and all the purposes that he might be calling and, and allowing him to be the one who calls and allowing him to worry about how all those things integrate together. Mm. So for me, um, my youngest, um, Peter was probably about two or three years old when I began to press into a vocation of writing um, more intentionally. And at that point, I felt the call of God, and my daughter was six. And I remember thinking, whoever I am is who my daughter will look to for her vision Mm. of a woman who's answering the call of God. Mm. So whatever I choose to do with my life as a woman is what she will at least see as the model. Now, she could reject it. She right. can move away from right. it. But this is going to set the standard for what it means to answer the call of God. And I knew at that point that part of what God was calling me to was to develop gifting in the area of writing. And I just personally committed. I had this private kind of, I don't know if it was a vow, but maybe we would use that language, to spend two years um, pursuing writing as part of a larger kind of testing of vocation and entrust it to God and let him do with it what he wanted to do. Mm. And within 18 months of that two-year period that I had set aside, um, Moody Publishers had approached me um, about writing a book. Mm. Um, And that was the first book about um, being image bearers, which is essentially the same conversation that we're having now in terms of vocation or the calling that God has built into us as those who represent him on this earth. Um, And so for me, one of the fundamental questions that have shaped my continued growth and understanding of vocation is that it is multifaceted. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't reduce ourselves to one thing. And I think this is particularly a theology that presses against the cultural moment of identity politics where we want to be able to classify ourselves as one thing Mm. because there's a safety and there's a security in that. I know that this is my job. This is my relationship. This is the way I move through the world. And what God is calling us into is a much more robust 
less certain kind of relationship with him. And one of the, the visions in, in my own experience, it's, it's being called out onto the water the way Peter is called out of the mm. boat. And it's answering that call, whatever it might be. So for me, that specific call has been uh, the call of domestic life with my family. It's been the call of local church work. It's been the call of writing um, and committing time to speak more broadly on subjects like human flourishing. Um, you know, the questions, my second book's about humility and creaturehood and limitations. Mm-hmm. Um and just being willing to let that vocation shrink and grow and change as um, the God who's calling me changes it. That's excellent. So you know, much to you track know, down. You know, uh, I, I want to point one thing out that I think is really interesting is um, whenever we get into a conversation with Hannah, I don't know if you know this, but you one of the things I love about you, the way that you think and help us to think is uh, it always seems to go in the direction of, um, of integration mm-hmm. and uh, almost like a lifting up the chin to look around and say, hey, there's a lot more than just right here. There's, this all fits together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyway, I just, I'm, I'm listening to you thinking this is, she's doing it again. Yeah. She's making me think about vocation bigger. And so I really appreciate that. Another thing that I want to I draw out a little bit is the, you say you've got the multifaceted picture, which I think is super, super helpful. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder too if I heard a little bit of um, dynamism of uh, of uh, rather than thinking of vocation as a static thing like God has given the call and now this is what I do, uh, but more of like a daily, uh, what is God's call for me today? What is or, or what is God's call for me today within this this career or this um, you know this part of the vocational yeah, picture set gifting. Have you thought much about the f- kind of the fluid nature of that? Uh, absolutely. Um, in part because um, the nature of my work for the last few years has been ridiculously fluid. Um, so being a an author, speaker, has a kind of an entrepreneurial angle to it where um, no one has created a job description that I walk into and fill. So I don't mm. have a boss. I don't have someone that's saying, Here's what you need to do in your 40 hours a week. So just by the nature of what I'm doing, there's a lot of fluidity that sometimes feels like a gift and sometimes feels like a curse. Um, But because I've been doing it in context of, um, it's very connected to family domestic life um, because I work from home um, and I still have children who, they're not young anymore. Every year they just, get older and older and older but still that being a a focus of mine there is an interplay between those kinds of um, responsibilities that I think sometimes in our more typical vision of vocation or of career um, we just don't even have to ask the questions yeah like if you're accustomed to going off to the office 40 hours a week and this time slot is hermetically sealed and you can just give yourself, it is very easy to begin to think that in that boxed space is your vocation, lies your vocation. And, but it's also protected and boundaried off from everything else that's happening in your life. If anything, the last few months have taught us, you know, with um, the pandemic and people having to move back home to work and trying to navigate this new space, we're learning this kind of fluidity, not just in 
the growth that we need within our own vocations, but how our specific employment or our specific gifting and work interact with every other part of our life um, and how some ways that makes them both better, how some ways that puts tension on them. Mm. And the tension itself reveals questions that need to be answered. Um, so for me, I, I tell, and my kids can testify to this, um, I'm a certain mother to them because I'm a writer, and I'm a certain writer because I am mm. their mother. And so there's this kind of, like you use the word, this dynamic that is constantly interacting with itself, within itself, all under calling. Right. Um, producing something beautiful and holistic and complicated. It's complex, but it's also complicated. Um, and I think we I have I'm going to nod along like I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> but I'll just, I'll let you unpack yeah. that. Well, I think if you listen to the different words, complex and complicated, to say something is complex can be something of, it can have a positive spin. Okay. It's not simple. Mm -hmm. It's complex. Mm. Complicated is inherently negative. Like, oh, that's complicated. Mm. Um, and I think that's the same. It's two sides of the same coin. So something that's complex is by definition complicated, but it can be that kind of blessing and curse yeah. kind of thing. Even even thinking through the, what, what you're talking about here, it makes me think about how, um, you know, I'm called to be a dad. I know that. Yeah. I got kids. I'm a man. I'm a dad. And and so, but that vocation is not, uh, it's not sealed off. And, and in fact, it's dynamic because every day is a question of uh, what kind of, what kind of dad am I called to be today? Yep. What, what kind of dad does God want me to be today? How can I best honor him yep. and love uh, my neighbor, which my children are my neighbor. Um, they're just really sometimes can be neighbors that drive me crazy, but <laughs> uh, you know, and same with pastoring, same, you know, so, so I, I find that to be really helpful. And um, I have, you know, I've benefited from all of all the books that you've written. Uh, you mentioned the humble roots book. Um, and that's my favorite one to give away. Like, hey, you really need this. <laughs> I've got something that would really help you. Um, and, and, and running down the book, the book line, Lane, you've got uh, Moody has been your publisher. Mm -hmm. So, and you, you just casually dropped like you were just writing and then they approached you. How does that happen? Michael, we're trying to work on a book deal for Michael. <laughs> yeah. Last week we... Yeah, you've been pushing hard to yeah, publish I think my non-existent book. is ready. Book. Yes, you need to start writing. Yeah, all I need is <laughs> is a proposal. Eighty thousand words or so. Yeah. So, so how does how did that happen for you? Um, it was nothing but providence. So, I want to say that right up front that this is not how you get a book deal. So, this is not standard. Okay, don't follow this. Don't path. follow this path. <laughs> um, but if God takes you on this path, it's a great path. You better take it. Yeah. Um. So I was writing um, a blog just had started, was on it. This, this was probably 2010. So I feel like I got in this margin where people were still blogging yeah. before um, social media kind of took over co-opted blogging. Right. And now it's just all micro blogs. Yeah. Um, so I was still blogging and people were reading. And I was in a church where um, one of the elders got a hold of it and saw it. And um, without my knowledge, passed it along to people who passed it along to people who passed it along to people. Mm. And it landed in Moody Acquisitions, um, the 
acquisition editor, um, read a bunch of stuff, reached out to me and said, hey, if you're ever interested in writing a book, let me know. And I was like, wow. How did you do that? How did you know? (laughs) Well, and the funny thing was at that point, I wasn't interested in writing a Mm. book because I was concerned with preparing myself to write. So I thought I'm still in that phase of just learning craft. Um, But I also knew that if someone approaches you with this kind of opportunity, um, God's doing something and you don't really have as much of a choice of whether you're ready Mm. to take the step he's, Mm. he's bringing. Um, And then they were just really patient with me as I stumbled through uh, crafting ideas, proposals. I, for the first part, I tried to play it really safe. Um, I tried to give them ideas that, you know, I thought fit the market or what people wanted to hear. And my acquisition editor just kept saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) And I finally, I said, several months into it, I said, okay, fine. The book I really want to write and the book I think we need to have is a book um, not limited to women, but perhaps directed toward women about their identity as image bearers, not just as, um, you know, gender-based discipleship within women. And the editor said, yep, that's the one. Mm. Um, (laughs) And so helped get Made for More um, into publication in 2014. Um, But that's a very unusual path. Um, So don't count on that being the process. Do you remember what the blog was that got got? Past and past and past. Well, it was some of just the early entries on my sometimesalight.com. Um, and I was just writing short essays, maybe 700 to 1,000 words. And I was writing them based out of my life and things I was seeing, things that it made me think about. Um, they were not remarkable. Um, so it was really God's graciousness and the willingness for this particular editor to take a risk. Mm. So... What about speaking? So you've, you, you started writing. Uh, how did you know that you could speak? You know, you do a great job. We were at a conference last fall, and you were one of the keynote speakers, and I was in the, in the audience. I know her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did, do a great job with that. How, how, how did you know this is something that God's calling me to? Well, what happened after the book started... Um, getting out. And and this happened with Made for More probably about a year after it went into publication. I started having churches um, contact me, women's groups um, for church-based conferences saying, will you come and speak? And at the point that they started contacting me, it became a question of this is a way to push forward a conversation that I think is essential. And so if a church is asking me to come speak on this conversation, I will do that. Mm. Um, And so when people reach out to me, there are a couple questions that we kind of talk about in the process of seeing if it's a good fit. And the first questions I have are, um, have you read my books? Do you know what I do, what I speak about? Because those are the only conversations I care about. Those are the conversations that I feel God has entrusted to me. And if those are the conversations that you want to move forward with in your church and you believe that God is leading your women's group or your church to this particular conversation in this season, I will be part of that insofar as I can be or as God is leading me to be. I am not a circuit speaker. 
I am not going to come fill your event just because you want somebody for this particular Mm. event. So I kind of set the bar high first with people who reach out to me and say, here's, here's the limits of what I'm willing to travel to speak about. Um, And in terms of being able to speak, I don't know that I'm, I I think of myself as a writer first and then a, a writer who speaks and, and the speaking is more, to create different avenues for the conversations to go forward. Um, and I enjoy it well enough. Um, I would probably rather be in my basement writing mm. um, just because I, I don't know why. I, 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 I have a little bit. I, I'm not nervous once I get teaching. Oh, this is why. This is why. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. This is the absolute truth. coming. <laughs> I get so stressed out by the everything around the speaking so once i stand up behind a microphone or i'm teaching Uh i'm fine Uh but like i have to get there yeah and i have to have the right clothes and i have to be presenting (laughs) myself in a certain way and it's that whole dynamic Mm -hmm. of yep the embodiment. How much am I going to sweat up there? How obvious is that? Oh, wait, sorry, that's just me. It's terrible. It's terrible. Like, how am I going to do my hair? Did I get my nails done ahead of time? Mm. I mean, so so yeah. that work is so hard for me. Mm. Um, is it the same after? Like, are you are you worried about the after as well, or just the just the lead up? Um, it, it is getting home at that point because literally, uh-huh. I get lost very easily. <laughs> <laughs> And I will fly places and churches will say things like, do you want us to get you a rental car? And I'm like, not if you want me to speak <laughs> at your church. You're going to have to pick me up. You have to pick me up, deposit me where I need to be, and take me back and almost literally walk me to the gate to put me on the plane. Mm. Mm. I am not nervous about this speaking. We're very thankful you made it here yeah, today. Well, yeah. my husband drove me Okay, down. okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you to Nathan for bringing Hannah straight to this studio. Yeah. And taking her back home. (laughs) Shout out, shout out, Nathan. So, so in the, in the vocation conversation, do you see, uh, do you see these specific topics as callings? Like these, you you know, you mentioned that what you, you're writing about are, you know, how, how uh, women can, can flourish and, and not, you said not just women, but, um, but I'm curious, are these, do you see these conversations themselves as, as part of your calling, not just a calling to write or a calling to speak, but about this particularly? Yes. I, I would say the writing is the vehicle that God has equipped me with to promote certain conversations and truths and ideas. And there are other ways to promote those same conversations um, but I'm not equipped to, let's say, um, start some kind of community organization and see it actually do the practical on the ground sure. outworking of human flourishing. Um, I am equipped to, um, and what I believe I'm called to do is to give words to truths so that people can understand them and take them and then go actualize them. Mm and apply them within their own context. And and Nathan and I, my husband and I, have talked about this a lot in terms of wrestling with what exactly do I do? Because when you say you're an author or a writer, well, 
there's so many could encompass so many things. I mean, do you write fiction? Do you write nonfiction? Do you write this area? And so for me, as I've wrestled with this, I believe, and um, I think it's been confirmed by those around me, is the specific vocation I have in terms of writing and ideas is giving words and structure to ideas that might just float out there otherwise. So Mm -hmm. I, I really feel like I kind of wrangle them and yeah. tame them yeah. and present them in a way for other people then to basically hand it off to them to go develop. Yeah. Um, so. I like that. Hannah Anderson, word wrangler. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm honestly, I mean, that is what, what you've done for us. The picture that came to mind for me is that like when uh, my wife loves to bake bread in particular. And so you have bread, bread has to be taken and, and, transformed in order for it to be digestible and so that's the image that came to mind was you're you're doing a similar process of like taking this and and making it digestible making it uh, absolutely yeah and I've found that my position um so one of the things in God's sovereignty in my life and my calling is um I probably would have really enjoyed a career in academia And I probably would have gotten sucked into it and lost and spent the rest of my days talking to other academics. Mm. And in God's uh, providence, he did not lead me into academia. I have a BA um, in the humanities. I got married really young, got, you know, had kids by 25. And I'm doing this very, um, you know, working in a local church, very lay level work Mm -hmm. while having interest in another space. And one of the things I believe God has used all of those different things in my life and in his providence to do is to potentially act as a bridge between the conversations that get caught in academia and to translate them down, or not down, I don't even think that's the right direction, but to, um, to communicate them in ways that the Christian in the pew can benefit from and understand and be enriched by because a lot of the conversations that are happening, um, you know, among some of our best thinkers in the church and in the world at large, um, can get trapped in ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think out, out is yeah. Down's fine. I'm fine with down. (laughs) The academy can just be insular. Yeah. Like they're, they're talking to each other. They're not talking to me or at each other or about each other. They're not, they're not talking to you. They're not talking to me. <laughs> no. You in Floyd County. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. You know, when you, let's talk a little bit about your most recent book. You just, I know, I know by social media that you just finished. Mm. I saw the picture that yes. you posted. You just finished. Tell us a little bit about the book. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about it. So I just turned in um, a manuscript for a book that will be published next February um, called Turning of Days. Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. And it is um, picking up some of the conversation of humble roots about natural revelation. But whereas humble roots was more about the creature, um, the limitations on the creature within this creation and how we come to peace with that, um, this is kind of focused outworld, out, outward at the natural world. And so the themes and the questions that I'm dealing with in this book are questions of natural revelation, natural law, um, the world under the curse, um, how we 
interact with the world, how we adapt to the world, how the world adapts to us, and what all of that teaches us um, about God as the creator. And um, I did take a slightly different approach with this book than with my previous ones. My previous ones are uh, much more linear. Um, They move from the argument through its various stages. It builds on it. um, It expands and explores this central um, thesis. This is a collection of devotional essays. It's 28 devotional essays, and it's intended to be read like through a month. So Mm. you would um, just read one a day. And the reason I chose um, that structure is because I'm, I would like to invite the reader to, to begin to sit with the natural world on a regular basis rather than just moving through cognitively truths about the natural world to say, actually, this is something you need to slow down and reflect on nature's testimony. And you need to do it in a way that's rhythmic mm. and um, you know, has that pattern repeated over and over and over again. So, so I'm hoping the very form will model for people a way to see the natural world and to think about it. Um, I, I'm curious to see how readers of the other books will receive this mm. one because it is a little different. It's a little more um, open-ended in some respects. It, it asks a lot more questions than it answers um, because I do think part of the testimony of nature is to humble us and to raise questions. Mm. If you look at Job, it's fascinating how in the latter chapters of Job, when, when God is speaking to Job, he's just asking questions. Yeah. Who did this? Yeah. Did you do this? And it's, it is more about presenting the right questions um, rather than giving this close-ended answer. So, so that's what I've been working on for the last few months, and I'm really excited um, to see how it's received. I've been able to work with my husband, Nathan, on it. He is an illustrator, um, and he ha- is adding pencil sketches to go along with the essays. So we're really very excited about awesome. it. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. I love the idea. You know, this is the first I've heard that. I, I think you and I have had a conversation about the um, trying to make explicit or or or, uh, or show the turning the the seasonal nature, the kind of rhythmic nature, which I, I really like. I like that it's both implicit and explicit from what we've heard so far. But this is the first I've heard um, the the approach to natural revelation as um, trying to listen to the questions being asked is interesting because. Uh, I can't think of any other natural revelation that I've read that isn't addressed specifically to what answers is nature giving us? Like, mm. like what can we know right, and right. can't we know rather than just what is, uh, what is God asking of us through his creation? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in your, in your, in your prep for, for writing, did you come across other works like that or is this? Well, one of the things that I think happened naturally as I was writing is I tried to uh, write a little more creatively um, to allow my own personal questions to come to the surface. And as I did that, I realized that as I interacted with the natural world, certain questions were there. And instead of like skipping past those questions or easily resolving them, um, in writing, I tried to perhaps... um, broaden them and make them bigger and more present in the writing. Mm. And what I found was so beautiful was, um, well, and I would say this first, um, 
a big fan of Annie Dillard. You know, mm-hmm. if you've read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, a lot of what she's doing in that book is when I experience nature, when I sit in nature, this is how it disquiets me. Mm. This is how it pushes me to not, it's interesting because we, we tend to have this very romanticized vision of nature that it's it, it calms you and it's peaceful and you just go out in nature to relax. And, and in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Dillard's saying, actually, I go out into nature and it terrifies me. Mm. You know, I see all of these questions that it pushes in on my sense of comfort and security and my sense of self and I have to find resolution to them. Mm. Now, Dillard is taking a, a very high-level philosophical approach. She's not taking um, in any way a a scriptural approach. For me as a Christian, though, I wanted to create space for those same kind of discomforts and that kind of disquietedness, Mm. but then to allow the scripture to reconcile them. Mm. So, for example, one of the essays I have in the book is the tension of having a cat that I love dearly, that we have as a pet, but also having um, birds that we feed Mm. outside our house. So we probably have six or seven bird feeders, and we invite these birds to come and feast. Uh And then the cat kills them. (laughs) Come and feast. Come and feast. Everybody's feasting. And be killed. Come into this trap. (laughs) I mean, it is literally laying a table in the presence of their enemies. And... Why is that so difficult? Uh-huh. Like when I see that happening, <laughs> I feel a level of responsibility, but should I? But I also feel, I think for me, the question of vulnerability, um, the question of knowing that my life is as fragile as those birds. Hmm. And Peter talks about Satan stalking us like a roaring lion yeah. and feeling that sense of, oh, I'm not worried about the cat killing birds. I'm worried about something killing me. Yeah. I'm worried about that. I'm that bird. Yeah. And what does scripture, how does scripture speak to that disquietness? And all of that comes through watching nature and being honest with what's happening. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of resolution I'm trying to allow the questions to be difficult, but also to say we're not left without answers. So there's this beautiful partnership between natural revelation and specific revelation um, to guide us through this this world that we exist in. Sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great. Be interesting, you know, to see if ha- just how much of a friend of the Bonhoeffer house you are. Is it be interesting to see if we could review copy, maybe an advanced <laughs> copy. Uh, no, it really does sound fascinating. I'm I'm looking forward to picking it up and reviewing it and maybe having you back on when it's published. I'm looking forward to seeing Nathan's sketches. Yeah. Oh, they're beautiful. I think I saw a, uh, I think he sent me a, like a screenshot of one that he did, but, uh, and it, and it, de- it does look beautiful. Um, and so man, excited, excited to get that. And, and to, to, we were just talking with, uh, Jerry McDermott a few weeks ago about, um, this maybe, a little bit of a recovery of natural mm. revelation um, yes, and how that's an exciting thing for us. Um, yeah. It feels like, it almost feels like a, a curtain of sorts is being pulled off of, I, I don't know whether to call it the, the evangelical church or what to call it. We don't know. What, what yeah, is it? 
just a, there's, <laughs> it seems like there's a return to an like an interest in in natural theology, an interest in the, I think the way we said it with with Dr. McDermott was the the kind of the reenchanting of the world, mm. um, that the world feels so closed in uh, and not glorious, uh, but but that doesn't seem to be what the Christian worldview mm-hmm. reflects or, or what the Bible reflects. That's right. He wasn't, he, he wasn't very interested in our, in our, um, in our theory that, <laughs> that there was maybe a, um, uh, that, that it, there's so many evangelicals reading Charles Taylor right now. Yeah. Uh, that, that is calling into question the kind of dis disenchantment of modernity. Yep. And, um, and so he, but he's not here to argue with us. He's not. We can espouse our so theories. We're, prob- <laughs> we're probably right. <laughs> I, yeah, but I genuinely was curious. It, it, like, it seems to me that that life lived in front of screens or behind screens. Life life lived in in cars and yeah houses. It 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 does something to you so that when you're not out there planting a garden, when you're not out there working in the field, when you're not like observing and, and your head's being lifted to see the the creation around you, it it seems easier to me to, to believe, yeah, the, there's, there's nothing really that glorious about the world, but, mm. but when we stop and, and, and observe and, and I think do what a lot of poets are asking us to do, which is to, observe mm-hmm. just 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 observe those questions that that you're talking about Hannah start to come up and and that word observe is my one hope for this book with the other books it was much more I want to communicate an idea to you I want to teach you something and I think a reader will learn something from this but my hope is to say lift your head look observe because mm-hmm. that has to be the first step to learning um even to begin that process. And, and I agree with you. It's, I think, um, so Dorothy Sayers has this kind of theory. She, she explores it in the question of work and vocation and context of how we, um, move through society. And she, she basically says that society can go only so far before it self corrects. So she sees it as a circle that even if you're going a certain direction, you're going to go over the arc of the circle and it's going to, the momentum of gravity is going to pull you down. It's going to self-correct. So you can go so far in a way that's mechanical and digitized and you're losing that connection to the natural world. But, but there is this kind of boundary on it where it's going to self-correct. And I find it ironic, horribly, it's, it's a beautiful literary irony that our world has been brought to a halt because of biology. So <laughs> over the last few months, all of our mechanisms mm. have been corrected, quote unquote, or at least challenged by a microscopic virus. That's right. And our, and our assumptions that we are the kind of enlightenment assumptions that we are going to figure this out. We have figured it out. We're going to live forever uh, in a in a kind of pain free, disease free world. Have have been blown up. It's a slow march to utopia. Yeah, I cannot <laughs> wait to pick that book up. Now I'm going to change gears just a bit here. Yeah, uh, and ask this: um, Can you speak? We, we were having a conversation before the mics went on 
uh, about women and men thriving in the church. And, and so I'd love to just invite you to speak into that a little bit. How do you see uh, men and women together thriving, especially maybe in leadership in the church together? Yeah, and again, as I said earlier, I feel like my calling and my vocation um, all originates out of this question of what does it look like to flourish? Um, and so for me, coming to the conversation about men and women partnering together, gender roles, however we want to frame that conversation, is at its root. It's foundationally about how do image bearers flourish? How do we partner together in our embodied lives to um, find the shalom that God is offering both through his son and that he is restoring in the kingdom. So when I think about flourishing together, whether it's in a church community, whether it's men and women, whether it's in a family, whether it's in society, there's a couple fundamental principles that we find in Genesis 1 um, that we just carry forward. And we see it in the New Testament as well. And, and it has less to do specifically with gender at first. So I think a lot of times we come to the gender conversation and we want to run immediately to um, male and female roles or male and female calling without even asking the more basic question of what do male and female have to do with each other? What is this thing of, um, you know, biological sex. And, and what it is at its root is a question of giftedness and limitation. And we see that immediately in the first two chapters of Genesis where God says it is not good for man to be alone. And part of that is this lack of uh, completeness in the Imago Dei, that, that the image-bearing capacity of humanity is not complete yeah. um, in one yeah. It is completed in two, and it's completed in two that are different and bonded through their differences. Um, and again, we use that language of difference, and I would prefer the language of gifting and limitation because that's the language that Paul uses within the body um, in the epistles when he's talking about our spiritual gifts, and he talks about the members of the body working together. You know, one is an eye, one is an ear, um, but you know, not everyone's going to be the eye because if everyone's the eye, where would be the hearing and th those kinds of questions. So we have that principle and we have that framework in our mind when we're thinking about spiritual gifts. And I think we would do well to apply that to conversations about flourishing together as men and women. And so the way we frame the conversation to this point is what can women do? Right. And that gets you nowhere. Or what can women not do? Right. It gets you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it Yes, but it doesn't get you to flourishing. Okay, that I agree with that. So that question cannot get you to flourishing. The questions we have to ask are, what are men uniquely equipped to do? And what are they limited to do? What are women uniquely equipped to do? And what are they limited to do? And again, we're talking as class. We're talking as class traits. And I know people, it's very quick within this conversation to say, well, I don't feel that way, or that doesn't represent me, sure. or right. we're talking in class, and I think class is a valid um, way to speak about these things. Because even within sociology, even within um, studies, you will see class traits emerge, you know, and, and this is what we see um, the characteristics, or, or even something to 
How do women make decisions? What is the process by which they arrive at a decision that's different than the way a man arrives at a decision? Yeah. And as you begin to see those things not as strengths and weaknesses necessarily, mm. but as, oh, I don't know, perhaps complementary perspectives. Mm. Mm. Someone should have been a word for that. <laughs> One should. You begin to see how essential yeah. both of those things are. And so in terms of the flourishing of a community, I really don't think the questions that we need to answer are ones about what role should people be in. The, the fundamental questions we need to ask are, how do we take our strengths that are related to our gender and bring them together for the flourishing of the community? Um, and it's even things like this. You know, just sociologically speaking, studies suggest that men as a class tend to think in answering questions more about the structures and the rules of the game. And so if there's a dilemma and a question that needs to be answered, typically men will follow the chart of, well, this is the rule, this needs to be done, and this is how this works, and this is the objective perspective on this. Women as a class tend to think of how does that question affect the group? Mm -hmm. How does it affect everyone involved? Mm, I don't think about that. Right, <laughs> right. Because this is what the, I don't want to This is going to affect people? In stereotypes. <laughs> but like in our family, when our kids were young, it was dad's in the car ready to leave. And we only have two children in the car and we have three children. <laughs> So it's like, wait a minute, the group is not all here yet. The yeah. group is not yet on board. Um, and so you can see how having both of those things are essential. Yeah. Because if you only consider the needs of the group, you just end up turning in circles. Yeah. You don't have forward progress necessarily. But if you have forward progress to the extent that you're losing people because you're not concerned. Like where, where's Peter? I don't know. He said yeah. he's still at home. He's still I getting know. ready. If he wasn't in the car when I told him it was time to go. I told him 10 o'clock we were leaving. The and rules you know, were we well, were leaving four, at 8 o'clock. Well, exactly. Yeah. I, I told the kids we were leaving at this time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think yeah. within the flourishing of the local church, actually leaning into the differences is remarkable. And, and what I think you'll find, um, I think one of the risks of how we have structured ministry, and this is another reason why I've, so appreciated the work of Bonhoeffer House is you guys are taking a more holistic vocational vision of the pastorate. Um, you're seeing the need for the for people preparing for ministry to be integrated holistically into communities where there's multiple um, care for them as individuals, and also this understanding that they're not just like a CEO at the top of an organization. Um, and one of the things I think has been lost in this, the way we frame the question, what women can't do or what women can do, is that the, the fallout that we did not anticipate is that a lot of pastors take on themselves things that they shouldn't necessarily have to shoulder because we're so concerned with, well, is this what a, can women do, I don't know, is this something women, well, just play it safe and let the pastor handle this. And mm -hmm. so the pastor is carrying this massive weight that was meant to be distributed throughout the body. Yeah. Um, 
And I know sometimes, I think some communities have noticed and, and understood that that's not healthy for one person to be carrying that. And so maybe we've gone to an elder model where it's plurality of leadership and there's a distribution of the weight across the elder board and there's accountability within that. But it still doesn't get to the fundamental question of gifts and limitations. And, and I do think some of the pastoral burnout that we see is directly related to the fact that we're not distributing the work of ministry fully enough throughout the congregational life because we are framing the question in such a way that limits that distribution. Mm. I, I love that. And we, we've been thinking a lot about that. This, as a matter of fact, even just in the last few weeks, um, well, not just in the last few weeks, for, for a while now, we've been thinking through uh, training both men and women. So, you know, the Bonhoeffer House is pretty narrowly focused on training future pastors. Um, you know, broadly, we like, to, we like to think of it as we're training future church leaders, uh, which would be men and women. We, we're training missionaries, pastors, people in, in vocational, uh, non-pastoral, non-pastoral work. But for the most part, we've got guys like Michael that come in, do an apprenticeship, become a resident, become a pastor, and so we're trying to broaden and, 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 been, and been thinking about training both men and women and, uh, and better kind of avenues for that to happen. But even, uh, even recent, as recently as in the last week, you know, I've, we've, we've, part of what we do is we'll get churches together, get pastors together for sermon planning, which is something we're doing right now, because it helps having a multitude of voices, right? Yeah. Having more than one person in the study can be helpful, not the whole time. Uh, but for, but for some of the time, especially if we're sharing a sermon series, working through, like right now we are with Sojourn Church, First uh, yeah. John, and uh, and it and it struck me that um, we don't have a we don't have a woman in the room, and so which which the scripture doesn't say anything about whether or not women can be in the room when you're planning a sermon, yeah, right, <laughs> like I mean I, we're, we're this just this just this is not spoken about, and so. Um, and so we started. Th- we've started to think about how can we make sure that we're 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 thinking about strengths, weaknesses, differences, rather than just thinking if we get a group of guys together, we're all we're gonna we're gonna all uh, we're gonna we'll we'll know it all. Yeah. We'll, we'll have all the perspectives. Uh, and so I really appreciate that way of thinking about giftedness, fittedness, uh, working together. Um, I think that's going to be helpful for us moving forward. Yeah, I, the the conversation in general is just a really interesting one to me. Uh, like even in the Genesis account, like the woman is presented as the, as the vital other, like it's not good that man is alone because alone, like you're, like you're saying, Hannah, man can't do what God has tasked him to do. Uh, and so he needs a, an other, a, a different person uh, in order to accomplish the, you know, the life, the life giving, uh, intention of, of mankind, the, uh, the, the ruling and reigning intention, like he, he needs a, an essential other, uh, period. And so I, yeah, I just, and, and I think you touched on, um, a phrase, the life giving nature of this. And I think the, the, the thing that I see, the principle I see in Genesis one is especially as it relates to gender is um, that when male and female partner, life comes. Yeah. Like we, we tend to see that, read that as a biological partnering, and it is, but yeah. it's not limited to that. This is paradigmatic of the way 
life comes into the world. It's when differences come together, that's when life comes. And what's fascinating to me, and, and this, when I recognize this and realize this, it just blew my mind, is that the creation mandate of Genesis 1, of male and female, bearing his image together, male and female, being fruitful, multiplying, male and female, extending the glory of God throughout the earth, is paralleled in the Great Commission. And so if the creation mandate required the partnership of male and female to bring life into the world, no less does the Great Commission require the partnership Preach. of male and female. I mean, teach. <laughs> well, and, well and, um, and in Ephesians, Paul circles around to say, you know, after talking about male and female, he says, what I'm really talking about is Christ in the church. So that right. the, the essential other for us mm-hmm. ends up being we, without Christ, we will not be able yeah. to produce life. Without Christ, we will not be able to live the way we were intended to live. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's just such an interesting conversation to think about like in a, in a real sense, the Eve, Eve is presented as this, this Christ partner. Mm-hmm. And then that's reflected in, in Ephesians as this is what Jesus does for the church as a whole. And, and I think if I had one wish for the way we were having this conversation more broadly in the evangelical church is that we are not talking about job descriptions. Like we are talking about fundamental principles of how God has created his world to work. And however you work that out in terms of your reading of the scripture, how you believe certain passages are best applied and most faithfully applied has nothing to do with whether you are finding ways and creating a culture where men and women are partnering for life. That's good. And I, I really appreciate, you know, in my experience in some of these conversations, uh, so much ends up hinging on um, submission and authority. Yeah. And, uh, and I wish that we would have more conversations about fitness, uh, co- complimenting each other for, for life and for flourishing, both in the church and in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is what God has called us to do. Really appreciate you speaking into that. Uh, I know that we'll be, that'll be one of the things we'll, we'll be thinking about uh, after this podcast interview in, in, in our own local churches. Uh, now, we're going to transition now. We're going to close this thing out with the lightning round. We do this thing, Hannah, where we, we're just going to rattle off some questions. you got to answer them as quick as you can. Um, and so just, just do your best. Uh, there's no wrong answer, except for there probably there's are. There, there's wrong. We, wrong well, I guess answer. probably what I mean is we can edit this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, here we go. If you could write one book and it was guaranteed to sell, what would you write? A fiction character-driven novel. Ah, see, I knew you, I knew Nathan told me that uh, your ideal world would be to live in a cabin somewhere, uh, apparently with a waterfall and a graveyard. Yes, that's right. Writing (laughs) fiction. Okay. Do you have a name for it or is there a person? Have you thought that far ahead? No. No, Okay. Okay, all right. What is the book you've given away most as a gift? Oh. I don't think it my can be own. your own. I was going to say, I give away a lot of those books just because I have them. Yeah, um, pop open the trunk. No, it is. You know how like <laughs> people give away homemade jellies and jams? I give away homemade books. Mm. So I give those You guys books. also give away homemade jellies and jams. We do, yeah. <laughs> yeah we do. They're, um, both, they're both, they're all good. I buy a lot of people, uh, a lot of women that 
um, I work with, um, Dorothy Sayers, Are Women Human?, which is a set of essays, um, which is marvelous. Mm. Awesome. Excellent. Hannah, what about, what is something under $100 that every writer should own? Well, I'll give you two things. Awesome. Um, Scrivener. I love Scrivener. Um, it's a writing app. Um, mm. And Stephen King's On Writing. Mm, brick by brick. Okay, Scrivener. So we'll, we'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. Yes. Excellent. Okay, if you were just going to say, hey, best book, best book of theology for the average Joe or average Jane, uh, what would you recommend? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not. That <laughs> entails knowing enough books of theology. We're going to go with Made for More by <laughs> Hannah Anderson. More. I, you know, I love mere Christianity. It's not, it's more philosophy than, you know. It works. It can, Yeah, it that works. counts. So we'll C.S. Lewis is allowed here. We'll, yeah. we'll accept that. <laughs> we'll accept that. We had a guest earlier who doesn't read C.S. Lewis, Reese Bazant. Well, well, we did establish that he read he Yeah, he's philosophy. read Lewis as as a philosopher yeah. or as a, a, a English professor but, yeah. or, or writer. But no fiction. But no fiction. He doesn't know Narnia. It's a deficiency. Well, he said he watched the movies. But. Watched <laughs> the movies. <laughs> All right. Hannah, oh yeah, go ahead. What are you reading right now? Oh, on your on your bookshelf, on, my bookshelf, on your nightstand right now is um, I'm reading a a book called Send Judah First, which is a novel that I picked up um, when I was at a writers conference in Bluefield, West Virginia, and another one of the speakers um, was there, and this was a book that he had written and was selling, and it is a novel um uh, a fictionalized account of a young slave girl that is um kidnapped from africa and brought to the new world um and you probably would never have a chance to hear of it or know of it i discovered it um at this writers conference and i love supporting other writers and i've enjoyed just reading through that the last few days i picked it up after i finished my manuscript so it's called send judah first Excellent. Sounds very interesting. You get exclusive book recommendations when you listen to The Hammer and Quill. Right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's excellent. Okay, what is the worst advice you regularly hear given to young writers? Build platform. Mm. Mm. Excellent. As much as I want to run down that, we got to keep I going. Know. We, need, oh. we need a longer... This needs it's to be two episodes. <laughs> we need to edit this. We'll come the... back around in February when the new book comes yes. out. Yes. How do you get unstuck on a project? What are some tricks you use to break through? Um, I cry. I mm. pray. I do housework. Um, I have learned to lean into the timetable that the Holy Spirit is taking me on in a project. And sometimes that means being willing to step away from it, even though I feel the pressure of, I want the breakthrough to come right now. So uh, some of that fluidity that we talked about mm. earlier, you have to be willing to let that be part of the process. Um, so usually I find if I step away from it and I let it sit for as long as it needs to sit a day could be a night. Um, things need to click into place in my brain. And then when I come back to it, it's okay. Maybe go take a walk by a waterfall. Yes. <laughs> Contemplate your death. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Okay. So last question. Uh, what advice do you have for a young writer? Write. 
Great advice. Not the first time we've heard that. I was trying to remember who said that. That was Trillia. Trillia. Yeah, just write. She said there's a difference between being an aspiring writer and being uh, an aspiring person who has a book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said a lot of people yep. don't want to write. They don't want to write. They yeah. just want to have books. It's absolutely the truth. Um, so you just have to write. And the people who do write are writers already, whether or not they have books published. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Hannah. This has been a incredibly interesting and fun conversation. Yeah. I want to thank Hannah Anderson for joining us for episode 14 of The Hammer and Quill. Thank you listeners for tuning in and tune in next week as we interview our new friend, Dr. Matthew Bates, about his exciting and controversial work. He's kind of in the middle of a controversy right now, which is we're going to ask him about that. We're going to see if we can set up a grudge match of some sort (laughs) uh, about really about the gospel. He's been working on uh, the theme of allegiance, salvation by allegiance alone, the gospel allegiance. Uh, In the gospel announcement, Dr. Bates is a professor at, I think, Quincy University, somewhere else besides Virginia. And so we'll have him on next week. Tune in. Please subscribe. Review us on iTunes. Throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time, peace. Peace.